0: Talking Books, on News 106 to 108.
1: And I think what most people are concerned about is the insecurity which they face. For example, they may lose their jobs because other people come in and offer to work for less and so on. I think that um, the great virtue of some kind of basic income, which I said is exactly what we do through the tax system anyway, so it's not the the economic consequences are not very different. I think, on the other hand, the way in which the role of the welfare state has been represented, particularly by uh, much of the media coverage, has had the effect of making it less publicly acceptable. And I think that's one of the losses, in, uh, in my view, that we've lost public confidence in what is actually a rather important instrument in the armoury that the government has to tackle poverty and inequality.
2: Extreme hopes are born from extreme misery. The words of British philosopher Bertrand Russell. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with two unique thinkers, one an economist, the other a novelist, writers of impressive instinct, integrity and hope. Glenn Patterson talks 1980s industrial Belfast and the charismatic and super ambitious John DeLorean, manufacturer of the world's first ethical car and the godfather of modern income research, Anthony Atkinson, unpacks a lifetime humanising economics. This is a show about cultural mindsets, wealth and perspective. But first, Belfast is my imaginative heartland.
0: Hello, my name is Glenn Patterson. I'm principally a novelist. I've published ten novels, two collections of non-fiction, a memoir about my grandparents. I also write screenplays and most recently I've just written my first libretto for an opera called Long Story Short subtitled The Belfast Opera. So this is Gull. Um, it's uh, a novel about the DeLorean factory, which was in Belfast in 19, late 1970s, early 1980s. And um, John DeLorean is the guiding presence in the novel, but he's not really very often in Belfast. Um, famously, in the four years that the factory was in Belfast, he didn't spend a single night in the city. But he's, he, he bestrides the novel. But we have, a, we have a character, I have a character called Randall, who is an American who is dispatched to Belfast by John DeLorean. So this is just after he arrives. To begin with, Randall stayed in a hotel, the Conway, a scant half mile from the future plant hidden away in woods on the edge of one of the housing projects that he had glimpsed that first day. Housing estates, I beg your pardon. The Conway, way back when, had been the home of some linen magnate, a brother of the owner of the former Seymour Hill, whose entire house and lands, hence estate, the Northern Ireland government had requisitioned after World War II for public housing. And Northern Ireland, they called it, not north or north of. They were very particular about that. As DeLorean had assured him, he was not on his own. As the weeks went by and the transformation of the Dunmurry cow pasture began, the Conway started to fill up with DeLorean Motor Company Limited guests. DeLorean himself returned to break ground at the start of October but had already checked in his souvenir spade for the flight back to London before the 14 earthmovers that entered the fields as he exited had between them turned over a single one of the 72 acres. One of the first to arrive was Marin Stallionides, the perpetually upbeat director of personnel who was responsible for finding a managing director in Chuck Bennington. Bennington was as lugubrious as Stallionides was sunny, a trait that Randall attributed in part to his beard and moustache which looked to be modelled on an old English seafarer's, a rally or a drake, and which seriously limited his scope for smiling, and in part to his rallying devotion to tobacco, which in its permanently lit cigarette form similarly limited his scope for speech. On Dick Brown's recommendation, Stellionides and Bennington brought in Dixon Hollingshead to oversee the construction of the factory itself, and to help swell the numbers in the Conway's residence dining room.
2: It's a terrific story. It's 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 hard to get your head around in one way how an American entrepreneur would come to Belfast at this time, at a very turbulent and violent time in its history, and decide to develop a factory to develop this what he termed was the the world's first ethical car you were a teenager at that time your parents would have had friends different people in the area would have known a lot about it or so it's very easy to have a very simplistic understanding of this businessman coming in and maybe ripping off the system in some way but he also had a huge amount of imagination and belief in a city that was under siege to begin with
0: there is no reason on earth why anyone would have opened a factory in Belfast in 1978, no one other than John DeLorean. The circumstances were such that um, it had to be somebody to come and do what he proposed to do, which was to build a factory in a cow pasture, uh, as he said, from cow pasture to car production in 18 months. In a city that had no track record of auto manufacturing at all in an area that had had up to 80% male unemployment. So it it was crazy that anyone would come, anyone other than John DeLorean. So the specific circumstances of his life coincided quite nicely with the general mayhem that was Belfast in those years. John DeLorean was on the run, as it were, from the United States auto industry. He had been tipped to be a, a future president of General Motors. He had been one of its very youngest chief executives. So he was on the way to the presidency and then all of a sudden he was uh, he was out, whether he resigned or whether he was kicked out, his um, moot, but uh, he certainly wasn't there anymore. And he, he had this plan for his own car um, that he wanted to build and uh, he sort of shopped it around. Um, there were a couple of countries, a couple of other territories that wanted it, but Belfast wanted it more than anybody else.
2: Is it true that he literally flipped a coin between Puerto Rico and Northern Ireland, because you could see that in one way as crazy antics, and in another way you could look at it as massive entrepreneurial vision mm-hmm. and business instinct, mm-hmm. and then he just went for it.
0: He did actually toss a coin, he, he actually had um, people sitting in a hotel room from the Puerto Rican Development Agency, sitting in a hotel room thinking they were going to sign the deal to bring the factory there, while he was actually in Northern Ireland finalising the deal with the British government. Do you know what he reminds me most of as a film producer. I've been thinking about this, and uh, with the little experience I have of writing film scripts, nothing is agreed till everything is agreed. Yeah. Until the whole thing is there, the film doesn't exist. Uh, and so I think that he was always playing people off each other. He was chasing, uh, he was chasing the money. So you know, he he wanted the very best conditions. He wanted to make sure that he uh, he paid out as little himself, mm-hmm. and he got the maximum mm-hmm. return himself. Well. First of all, that's, that's capitalism yeah. in, its, in its essence. Yeah. And secondly, that's film production.
2: But yeah, maybe he was a bit of an opportunist, if not an unbelievable opportunist. But he also had a social instinct. He wanted a sectarian-free workplace, very good work conditions. He paid his workers very well. So those who had a job there at the time, it may not have been sustainable, but it did give huge hope to the city at a very fractured time.
0: I mean, I think that he was a visionary. It may have been a flawed vision. Uh, there were lots of things that were wrong, and I don't want to come across as though I um, I buy it entirely, what he was doing. I think there was a degree of opportunism. But I do think that he had ideas about how the, the, a factory should be organised, and uh, his employees were paid... Comparable rates to American auto workers, which meant they were paid far better than anybody mm. in Northern Ireland at the time. Very importantly, he had women on the production line. Mm. This might sound like a very small point, but um, there were toilets for women. There were like quite a lot of them. So it was built into the factory that there were going to be women workers there. It wasn't an afterthought at all. Mm. There were always going to be equal numbers of women and men. He was also creating a non-sectarian mm. workspace. Again, it sounds slightly crazy to say that um, the banning of flags and political emblems on the factory floor was uh, novel in those years, but Mm. it was. In in many ways, he created um, an ideal uh, factory. uh, The independent state of Mm. DeLorean Mm. was what he was trying to create, or what he said he was creating. It's questionable whether he was uh, repeating the things that he knew were going to attract the British government funding, Mm. continued funding, and how much of this was his own Mm. ideals. I think probably I'm, I'm I'm more inclined to think that he really did have high hopes for the kind of factory he was building and what it could contribute to the city. What John DeLorean didn't have was the longer term plan and mm-hmm. it all fell apart, avoidably. It didn't need to fall apart, but it fell apart very quickly because of, of certain things that he either didn't foresee or... Criminally, and I don't mean in the sense he should have gone to jail for it, but Mm. criminally for the people involved, uh, his workers, he just didn't make Mm. provision for the adversity that did come.
2: He got stuck by the FBI for drugs and stuff, didn't he? Although he wriggled his way out on illegal technicality, as far as I know, wasn't
0: it? There was a ticking clock. He he had a lot of money from the British government, uh, and then shortly after the factory agreement was signed, the British government changed. Mm. The Labour government went out and the Conservatives came in under Margaret Thatcher. She was no fan of government subsidy. She was no fan of John DeLorean's. So pretty soon after the factory started to produce, the British government wanted its money back and there a series of things happened. There was a terrible, terrible winter in the United States. So um, the first wave of cars that had been sold in there or shipped there didn't sell, nobody wanted sports cars in ten feet of snow. <laughs> but eventually, he had to he had to pay um, some money back, and it came down to about twenty million dollars, but ten million pounds in those days that he had to pay back by October nineteen eighty two, October the nineteenth. And on October the 19th, 1982, he was caught in a hotel room in L.A. with um, suitcases full of cocaine in an FBI sting. Now, he wasn't convicted. It was entrapment. The FBI definitely Mm -hmm. did entrap him. I've spoken to people who worked at the factory and they thought that um, he probably was a willing participant in this drugs operation. But what they said crucially was he would have done anything to keep the factory open.
2: What's your job here as a writer though? Is it your job to pass moral judgment on it all? Or is it your job just to give the imaginative power of that story?
0: I don't think as a as a novelist you can really be uh, you know past judgment. I mean I think you, you however you you might think that you you remove yourself from that role but you know I know that by the deployment of your mm-hmm. incidents and mm-hmm. the way in which you order the the narrative that people might arrive at certain conclusions faster than they'd arrive at others. But I wasn't I wasn't entirely sure what I thought about them. When I was writing the novel, um, or, or certainly what I thought about him when I um, had the idea that I would write the novel wasn't really what I thought about him by the end of it. I was I was better disposed towards him by the by the end of the novel. I certainly didn't think he was a crook. I said that he I thought he was in some ways he's a bit like um, a film producer. Um, he's certainly he's a typical entrepreneur. There's a lot of gambling involved in those things, it's high risk stakes and generally you find that those people don't use their own money. Mm. They gamble mm. with other people's mm. money if they possibly can. I mean one film producer I know said to me, just never put your own money into a film, that's crazy. Mm. So you use, you use other people's money. So I think that he was, if he had got over the first winter, if the cars had sold that first year, I think probably he would have he would have got through and what then became you know he he's exposed as having squandered all this government money the gamble fails and you look practically criminal if the gamble had succeeded no one would have noticed
2: I'm wondering when you say there that you know you're saying that it's not really your job to kind of pass judgment it's a good thing to go in on any creative journey with an open mind but certainly in your non fiction you haven't been scared to offer an opinion or two, in Laps Prostan, yeah. for example. And you've been pretty full-on in your opinions.
0: Uh, I mean, I, th- I think one of the reasons I started writing nonfiction was because you can't use a novel to mm. deliver a political message. Mm. Um, or if you're going to, it's going to be, first of all, it's going to be about two and a half years after you had the idea to, to speak before anybody gets to read it. And it's going to be inevitably diluted by the rest of the, the narrative it's, it's it's so it's just not a great vehicle for political statement and in fact you know I think readers are pretty quick to pick up on when they're being lectured mm-hmm. and nobody really wants to be lectured in in fiction anyway so so I started to write uh, non-fiction pieces just for as a, as a way of speaking more directly I suppose in your own voice because mm-hmm. the other thing is when you're writing fiction when is it you that's speaking mm-hmm. um, you know you're not absent from it but you're not as present maybe as you are in a piece of of non-fiction
2: Presumably it's a different type of pleasure though and a different type of reward because you, you've done historical fiction and um, done a massive amount of research for some of your books mm-hmm. whether it's that you can spontaneously react in a piece of journalism to some pressing event.
0: I'm very careful to say I'm not a journalist mm-hmm. and uh, in fact I, recently I published a, piece, a travel piece about gin mm-hmm. distilleries in Northern Ireland. Um, it was a travel piece for The Guardian I was happy to write a piece, but um, the kind of brief was so specific, you know, headings, uh, introduction. And it's that moment where I realised that I'm, I'm not a journalist. What I am is I write occasional pieces. Uh, sometimes they I respond to um, very particular circumstances. I've written an awful lot about politics in, in Northern Ireland uh, and further afield, but an awful lot about politics in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, I'm a political human being. I'm political, I think, as a as a writer. But the novel isn't the form for it. So, um, but once every month or so, or six weeks, or something like that there is a moment where I think I want to write something and lo and behold, you manage to write the, the required 750 words on the day when you can actually get it into print somewhere.
2: I have to ask you something. Okay. Um, In some of your non-fiction work, you've touched on your relationship with your father mm-hmm. and you wrote something that you know your father, yourself and your dad are very typical as father and son. You love each other, but you don't know a lot about mm-hmm. each other on that kind of intimate, emotional mm-hmm. level that you kind of talk about the general stuff, mm-hmm. but you don't really talk about your... Or fears or anxieties do you think that's typical of our generation and maybe that whether it's your children or grandchildren mm. that things will have loosened up
0: do you know i'm i did i wrote a thing about saying that uh, my father and i we you know we spent a lot of time with each other but mm. we and, and we spoke about events but we didn't talk an awful lot about emotions and uh, and, and we are very close but there are certain things that uh, i do not know about him and he does not know about me there is a part of me um that wishes i could be more open with Mm. my parents i could be more myself and i do wish that there's another bit of me that actually doesn't want to be you know i don't want to be talking about emotions all the time Mm. um and uh, and i think there's cheapens it somehow i'll try and give you an example of this my grandparents i wrote this book about my grandparents called once upon a hill Mm. the reason i wrote about it my grandparents it turned out i didn't know this until quite late on in my life my grandparents were one was Protestant, one was Catholic. They lived in the town of Lisburn and uh, they had lived quite close together. They were caught up in the riots of 1920 in Lisburn. My grandmother wasn't living with my grandfather at the time, though they'd had a child together. She was burnt out by a mob and it turned out that the mob was led by a man who I'd seen in their house many years later when I was a kid. He was there drinking tea. Somehow they had managed to repair their lives and the relationships mm. in that town, they never spoke about it. I never heard it spoken about. My dad didn't know very much about this. It was. It took many years to put piece this all together. I admire, in some ways, their ability to deal with the past mm. in the way that they chose to do it,
2: mm. and the discretion also.
0: Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think I think that there's something. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that. I'm pulled in in several directions. You know, I I don't think that it's healthy always to bottle things up, not to talk about things. At the same time, I wonder if there's a tendency in the current times to be too confessional to want to talk too much to share in each other's pain you know if that hasn't become a kind of uh, a vicarious entertainment mm-hmm. let's face it that's the kind of thing we used to do when we read novels wasn't it to, to experience other other lives and whether there isn't just now this tendency just to to share the, this the, every every uh, every aspect of your life and emotions
2: how much of a leap, Glenn, was it to put together a screenplay for Good Vibrations? Because here you are, you're writing non-fiction, you're writing novels, lots of different stuff. But it's a very different art writing a screenplay and getting the dialogue and it's much more pared down. Mm. And while it's an interesting scope, you're quite restricted another way. There's a method to it all.
0: Writing screenplays, I, I, had, I had a go at doing it mm-hmm. very, very early on. Before I ever wrote a novel, actually, I, I tried to write a screenplay and um, I wasn't didn't feel like very comfortable doing it when i came to good vibrations very simply the reason uh, i chose to and i co-wrote it i wrote it with uh colin carberry which is another thing co-writing um but the reason we did it as a screenplay was we couldn't think of another way to tell this story the story of terry hooly um record shop owner record label owner in belfast in the 1970s it was so visual and uh, we, we decided to have a go at it. And it was an experiment. I think we, um, well, first of all, we were trying to co-write. Neither of us had done that. We were trying to write screenplays. Neither of us had done that. Oh, it was a biopic. So we'd never written about somebody's life, who somebody we knew. Every stage along the way, we'd say, well, we'll do this and we'll see how it goes. And if it's going okay, we'll keep going. And so we did that. We started working on it in 1997. The film, um, we got quite far with it for a couple of years. We were talking to Film 4, we were talking to various producers. Terry Hooley himself decided that he didn't want to go ahead with it at a certain point in the late 90s. Absolutely nothing to do with me and Colin. He just decided it wasn't the time. So we just set it aside. And about six or seven years later, it was reactivated. Mm-hmm. Somebody got in touch, said that they'd heard there was a script or something. Um, what there was was a floppy disk. Floppy <laughs> disk. So there was a floppy disk with a, a treatment we had written. That was it. We, yeah, We just we, we just tried to see how it worked. And and the, the one thing that I think we did that um, I'm glad we did was we thought we would make it an entertaining piece of writing mm-hmm. on the page. So we thought if it read well, then it would maybe mm. be good on the screen, and that if people enjoyed reading the script, because I had read scripts at various times, and I was I was often surprised how unengaging they were on on the page. So we just thought if we write something, if it's enjoyable, then maybe people will be interested in trying to see how that would turn out on the screen.
2: Sounds like it's changed your perspective as a writer, has it?
0: It has. I mean, lots has changed since I started since we started working on Good Vibrations. Colin Carberry and I are working on several scripts together at the moment. Um, so I think of myself now as someone who does write screenplays. I was a bit uncomfortable saying I write screenplays. I've still only had one that's been in a in a on a screen, but I I do it quite a lot now. That thing about writing novels, you know, people say, is it not terribly lonely? No, it's not terribly lonely. It's terribly good fun actually being on your own. But there is something uh, interesting um, about working with other people um, in the way that you do when you're working on film. I've written a a libretto for an opera recently, um, long story short, working with uh, Neil Martin, composer and musician um, from Belfast. And we were working, we had a, a chorus of 90 we had uh, an orchestra of 20 players, 22 players, I think. And we had four principals. So that's a massive thing. Um, it only ran for three nights. It was only ever going to run for three performances in, in Belfast. But it was such an enjoyable thing to be involved in. And uh, so I want to do more of that. I want to write opera. I want to write... I want, do you know what I want to do? I just, I like the idea that when you start to write something, that it will be completed and performed, presented published, that that gives me more satisfaction than anything else. I just like to see an end to the things that I start.
2: novelist and screenwriter Glenn Patterson Goal is published by Head of Zeus and retails for just under 10 euros in paperback Talking
1: Books on News 106 to 108
2: And you're very welcome back to Talking Books I'm Susan Cahill It's lovely to have your company this evening OK let's stick with the theme of working lives income and social justice In his latest book Inequality What Can Be Done British economist Sir Anthony Atkinson writes there is more than one way of doing economics. I was taught in Cambridge, England and Cambridge, Massachusetts to ask who gains and who loses from an economic change of policy. This is a question that is often missing from today's media discussion and policy debate. There is not just one economics. Well, this week, I have the very great pleasure of talking to Tony on inequality. Without doubt, one of the defining issues of our time. I'm Tony Atkinson. And I'm just finishing
1: 50 years as a professional economist. I really came into the subject because I was concerned about what I saw in the world around me, particularly the issues of social justice, uh, which perhaps is not always what drives economists, but it led me to become uh, concerned about inequality, a subject which wasn't being really taught very much in the curriculum. And I've spent most of my research time since then uh, developing new ways of looking at it and new ways of tackling it. I wrote the book really out of a sense of frustration, which was that uh, people were, I think, recognizing from President Obama and America, for people in in the European Union, and indeed in the the British government, were recognizing that inequality is a, a problem, but very few of them were willing to say anything at all about what they or anyone else could do about it. So indeed, in that sense, it certainly is a manifesto saying, well, we agree that there is a problem. What concretely could we, either as governments or as individuals, uh, do about it?
2: Tony, I read somewhere that you volunteered before you went to college in the very early 1960s in a hospital in Germany, I think it was in Hamburg, and that that lived experience of equality, seeing it firsthand, really informed your thinking and also what you wanted to do with your life, what you saw was your life's purpose.
1: Yes. I was in Hamburg, I think, just after the Beatles, so I I missed seeing them, but it did certainly have a big impact on me because I, I arrived as part of a, I think, a sort of pilot program of voluntary service overseas, and working in a very deprived area of Hamburg brought home to me what I think I hadn't been aware of before. And it meant that when I went to Cambridge as a student afterwards, I decided after one year of mathematics to become a, a social scientist.
2: It's funny how we can live in the West and presume that inequality is a problem in maybe countries in Africa or in South or Central America. But it is at our doorstep and it is a national problem, a European problem and a worldwide problem, isn't it?
1: Oh, it's very much so. I think that the, um, well, I think first of all it is important to stress, of course, that the global problem, is perhaps the most pressing aspect of this. And one of the things I try and emphasize in the book is that inequality and poverty have to be looked at together. And at a global scale, I think uh, the problem of extreme poverty is clearly, I think, one of the most challenging things, along with climate change, which the world faces. So I think one has to begin at a global level, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about what's happening within our own countries. And indeed, I think that's what has happened in the last uh, two or three decades in quite a number of rich countries has shown that it's very corrosive that the effects that inequality has on our own societies.
2: I'm going to throw you a bit of a philosophical question. Do you think governments and policymakers, whether it's at national, international or regional level, do you think they promote the interests of the rich?
1: Well, I think, I think that governments and political parties are very much influenced by the, the, the media, which is, I think, an indirect way in which um, Wealthy people are certainly able to influence considerably, also, of course, through political financing, which is perhaps more extreme in the United States than it is in other countries, but nonetheless plays an important role. I think that's true. I also think, to put a more, slightly more charitable interpretation, is to say that it's a lack of imagination on the part of our political leaders that they just haven't really conceived of the possibilities of things that we could do or we have done in the past and have stopped doing. They've narrowed down the agenda to a, a not really recognise that there are concrete things that they could actually do.
2: So when in that lack of imagination then, do you think maybe policy makers are asking the wrong questions?
1: I think they're not asking sufficiently fundamental questions. I mean, There's no doubt in my mind that any serious programme to tackle inequality has to partly consist of... Uh, using the fiscal the taxes and transfers and welfare state and so on. But also it has to address the distribution of rewards in the market and the way our economies work. And I think that's the kind of question which is not being asked. And of course, is a, a rather basic question about how we organize our society. Very concerning, isn't it? It is. And I think there are all kinds of ways in which the, the question, as it were, is raising its head above the parapet. In all sorts of areas in the labor market and what's happening to savings and what's happening to the transmission of wealth and all sorts of ways in which uh, the behavior of large corporations, all of these things, tax avoidance and so on, there are all ways in which I think we need to think again about the fundamentals of our economic system.
2: Do you think you're at the back foot or you're working from the back foot in some way by writing a book on economics with its specialty being inequality? I know somewhere you referenced Stephen Hawkins, who said every equation halves the number of readers. And he's right there because a lot of people just switch off when they see all these numbers and spreadsheets and statistics. They just go, oh, Jesus. So it must be very difficult to pitch an economics book and make it relevant to the broad and general reader. And will in that highlight an area that a lot of people have a lot of political opinions about?
1: Yes, of course, the fact that people have opinions about is, in some sense is, is uh, an attraction because obviously one tries as well to come to grips with the, what they, those opinions are and to either support them or to criticise them. So in, in that sense, I think there is a, a popular interest which perhaps is not being re, uh, reflected in the professional concerns of economists. I think the book has been selling as well better to lay readers probably than to uh, people who would call themselves professional economists.
2: Now, you ask a very relevant question in the book. You ask, how do we explain how holding down a job in, in today's world, whether you're a teacher or a nurse or in a skilled professional, that you may not be able to, whether it's pay for healthcare, get a mortgage and whatnot. How do we explain all of that?
1: Well, it has to think about what economically can be achieved. And again, I think we've been rather badly led in that respect. I mean, I think created expectations about, for example, continued growth, which probably are unsustainable. And that I think if it's realistic, now one has to appreciate that we're not going to have the rates of growth in rich countries that we've had in the past or since the Second World War, or more recently. Uh, And that, for example, we're going to have to spend more on dealing with the problems of climate change, on meeting with the problems or the the challenge of the ageing of the population. All of these things mean that living standards are not going to rise as fast as they have in the past. And that makes it even more important to make sure that what gain in living standards there is should be shared equally uh, or fairly between different groups in the population.
2: Yeah, you mentioned some startling statistics in the book and one of them that just hops off the page is that you say the top 1% in the US now receives close to one-fifth of the total gross income. So if I put that very simply, that's 20 times their proportionate share. That's crazy when you think about it, but it's also down to policy that has allowed the types of super rich to exist in the first place.
1: Yes, I think the, I mean, the, the reasons for it are partly um, the changes have been made in the way in which they're, they're taxed and so on. But it's also uh, the, the way in which these um, large amounts of income are generated. We've effectively seen a, a shift in the, almost the ethics of pay. where I, I can remember when I first became a professor, there were, I think, four points on the scale at that time. And you moved up every five years, you moved up a point. And it would have never crossed my mind to go into the vice chancellor's office and start negotiating about how much, where I should be. And that was, I think, broadly accepted. And the same was true in companies, that uh, CEOs were paid more, but not excessively more than people on the shop floor. And I think that's broken down. And we've seen now where it's become perfectly acceptable to be very, very large pay differentials, which has generated, as you say, the top group's Managing to scoop a very large part of the increase in income that's taken place in the past two or three uh, decades.
2: Tony, do you think that an introduction of a basic income or a universal wage will solve all our problems? You have some very interesting stats on falling inequality levels in Brazil, Argentina and Chile. They're experiencing rapid economic growth and they've seen a substantial increase in the minimum wage. So I'm just wondering when we look in Europe and we look at whether it's in Dublin, London, Manchester, wherever it is, that we have very high levels of child poverty, and that these levels have actually got worse in the last 50 years. Could it be that we are maybe looking at um, income distribution in all the wrong ways and that we need to bring about or we need to introduce some form of basic wage?
1: I think that, uh, well, there are several elements in, in that. I think I, I start off by, first of all, saying that I think that if I had a priority, I think it would be investment in and I do think that uh, what has happened to family benefits, and in particular, I think, to a benefit which uh, is well, guaranteed that, you know, every month you're going to get it, that's a major part of what we should be doing in terms of investing in the future generations. I think that the, the issue of a minimum wage, again, I think that um, what well, we, we have seen in the United Kingdom, actually, uh, the minimum wage being introduced, we were very slow to get one, but well, we have seen that, uh, that it's been increased recently. And here, I think the important thing to bear in mind is the effect that it has on the willingness of employers to invest in their labor force. And I think that's something which has been one of the reasons why family poverty has uh, tended to increase is the fact that employers are much less willing today to invest in their workers than they were a generation ago. And we've seen, for example, the decline in apprenticeships and similar schemes which uh, had the effect of making sure that people were, that the investment was, was taking place. I have to look at the, the idea of minimum wage in relation to the wider problems of the labor market, where I think it's issues to do with the short-term interests of employers, the short-term interests of shareholders, which have led in many cases to this failure to develop the skills of the labour force and as a result have left people on very low and often very insecure wages
2: I suppose you weren't surprised when you saw Switzerland recently uh, reject the proposal of a uh basic income for all or a universal income for all. I know their um, employer lobby was very, very very firm in how they advocated against it, saying it was basically unworkable, unaffordable, that it would be way too disruptive on the economy. Do you think a universal income, though, would act as a, you know, incentive for people not to work, that people just get lazy and go out to hell? Do you think that <laughs> is likely?
1: Well, we don't say we the rich. If we pay them more, they get lazier. So... It's a city uh, what? It's source of the goose, is source of the gander. They really. were.
2: But what do you say to all these ideas on scroungers? It's you know the philosophy of the scrounger. Do you think that how we're looking at this and we look at problems of inequality and if we want to give people a universal step up, that um, if we do it, well, there'll always be the freeloaders. Is it a very not just negative approach, but is it a very unenlightened approach against humanity, if you will?
1: Yes, I think it is. And I also think that one of the important things about it is providing people with some degree of, of, of certainty in their life. And I think what most people are concerned about is the insecurity which they face. For example, they may lose their jobs because other people come in and offer to work for less and so on. I think that um, the great virtue of some kind of basic income, which I said is exactly what we do through the tax system anyway. So it's not the, the economic consequences are not very different. From what we do already. I think that that's a reason why one shouldn't worry too much about it. I think, on the other hand, the way in which the role of the welfare state has been represented, particularly by uh, much of the media coverage, has had the effect of making it less publicly acceptable. And I think that's one of the losses, in, in my view, that we've lost public confidence in what is actually a rather important instrument in the armoury that the government has to tackle poverty and inequality.
2: Do you think businesses need to take greater account of their social responsibilities? And do you think maybe that if they don't think it's their remit, well then certain policies need to be put in place so that it becomes more clear? Like do you think we need to maybe rein them in a bit?
1: I I think that's a very important point. I think that the capacity to operate a business, uh, to have a corporation depends on society. And it's a, a privilege to be able to run a corporation. And with that privilege should go uh, social responsibility. And I think probably many, I suspect, um, enlightened businessmen would agree that they, they're perhaps focusing purely on the interests of their shareholders is too narrow a view of their social responsibilities. And indeed, I think that um, one should see some recasting of the responsibilities so that they have to take account of the people who work for them, and also I think of their customers. And I think we, we tend to forget about consumers, but consumers are also very much exposed often to being treated unfairly or unreasonably by businesses. So I think definitely we need sort of redressing as a balance uh, and uh, some degree of what we might call countervailing power to offset what has become very much a field dominated, uh, as we've seen recently with negotiations about uh, the transatlantic trade investment partnership. It's been dominated by uh, corporations and uh, even elected representatives have had no say in those negotiations.
2: And within that debate, it's also dominated by fear. Can I ask you, when you're out and about and you're meeting with business leaders and professionals at the top of their game and you have put on paper after 50 years of academic work that you think that a top rate of tax at 65% is the way to go, what's the reaction
1: well, I think most people, when you raise questions about top tax rates, they say, oh, no, no, not 98% again, because we did have used to have a top rate of 98%. And I think that was silly, I and mean, I think that was um, not a, a, a sensible policy to pursue. But I also think that determining this tax rate is actually not really an economist's question. I mean, it's not really purely a matter of balancing incentives and so on. It's also a question of what people think is, is fair. And I I chose the 65% because it's actually the rate which the government, in the case of my own country, applies to the income that people on benefits receive. That is, if you're on benefits and you earn an extra £10 and you lose uh, £6.50 of it. And I think to me that's where it embodied a a sense of what people might think is a a fair amount of the extra income for you to keep. And I think what's uh, suitable at the bottom should apply equally uh, at the top.
2: So our taxation systems are basically unfair, unreasonable and unjust. Is that what you're saying, based on that argument?
1: Yes, I I think fairness, it seems to me, is probably people's overriding concern. They think it's unreasonable if if you work hard and you only kept, as it were, 5p of every pound. That would not be reasonable. On the other hand, I think to keep as much as 55 or 60% of it is probably unreasonable. So in between, and that's why 65, 60... 70, those sort of numbers seem to be about a reasonable level for the the top tax rate.
2: But do you think people think, what in terms of policymakers, think what's reasonable and fair? Do you think that's at the bottom of their minds, ultimately, when they're formulating how we're to run our economies, whether it's politicians or business leaders? Do you think fairness really counts to them?
1: I think it's the word you hear most often um, with regard to taxation. Well, I think, first of all, of course, again, our leaders have not done a good job of persuading people that, uh, to quote from the building of the American tax authorities, that taxes are the price we pay for civilization. The first thing one has to do is to rehabilitate taxation as something which is necessary in a a society. Having done that, I think then people's concern is that the burden should be, I think the word they most commonly use is, fairly distributed.
2: How do you think we're doing in terms of female participation in the workplace? And do you think in some small way that female participation in the workplace has reduced inequality? Or have I got that all wrong?
1: No, I I think, uh, of course, in my book, I was rather anxious to stress that inequality is not just between rich and poor. It's also between men and women and also between generations. And indeed, I think there are some respects in which um, inequality between men and women has actually tended to, in recent years, to worsen.
2: Yeah, I think you mentioned somewhere that the rich are marrying the rich and the poor are marrying the poor.
1: Yes, because that that really does determine what happens as a result of uh, increased Participation in the labour force. Uh, But I think that you're right to say that it certainly had an effect uh, on reducing to some degree the inequality between households. But Of course, what also has to bear in mind, we've seen increase, for example, in uh, breakdown of marriages and other things which may have offset that to some degree.
2: I suppose it depends how you look at inequality, doesn't it? Because it, you can come at it from so many different variables. Do you think Thomas Piketty, it was in 2013 he brought out his book Capital in the 21st Century. I know he, you mentored him quite considerably in his early days. Do you think that book shifted the debate on how we understand inequality? Or do you think it in some way got people thinking? Because it was a runaway success and suddenly economics became sexy. <laughs>
1: Yes, it was a tour de force, I think, no doubt, the book. Um, and uh, it had a remarkable impact, um, as you say. Uh, in terms of the, the content, probably the most important thing is, as the title suggested, the emphasis on the role of, of capital, because we've tended to focus on what people get paid in uh, salary and earnings, and to ignore the fact that a significant part of the national income goes to people who own wealth. And I think that was probably a shift in people's perception, which uh, he is through his work on inheritance, for example, uh, has brought out very clearly.
2: Can I ask you, why do you think inheritance tax is so unpopular? You have a very good turn of phrase in the book where you talk about reducing the inequality of opportunity. And it really is, isn't it?
1: Yes. Again, I think it's partly the the political... uh, leadership has failed, it's also partly that um, it's become rather bound up with the issue of housing and uh, the great difficulty young people have in establishing themselves on the housing ladder. And they would see taxing the inheritance as if it's taxing the houses that their parents leave, and it, it, would, as it would close the door to them getting onto the housing ladder. So I think the confusion of those issues is probably one reason why it's been difficult to do. But indeed, I think that if one is at all serious about it, securing equality of opportunity, which most people, if you ask them, would agree to. It's hard to find a politician who's against equality of opportunity. It's very hard to secure that when some people do indeed have a, a starting ticket in the race, as it were, which leaves them with a substantial sum of money, whereas most people have very, very little.
2: Well, maybe a lot of people think it's a bit too inconvenient to have a level playing field.
1: Yes, I, I fear that's the case. But I think, um, again, we have to think they're also positively the other way around, which is to say, if we use the revenue raised from that tax to do what uh, Thomas Paine suggested uh, in the 1790s, which is to give everyone a capital grant when they reach the age of adulthood, then it might not be a very large sum, but it nonetheless would be, begin to explain why what we're trying to do. And uh, even a, a modest sum would make quite a difference to people trying to fund their education or to get a down payment on a, a house or something of that sort.
2: Tony when you're reflecting whether it's early morning late in the evening I can only imagine in a career of 50 years studying economics and teaching economics that you've learned so much from your students as well as from the books that you've read do you have grounds for hope I,
1: I do remain optimistic <laughs> and, uh, and some uh, people
2: would say that's very naive
1: yes well, I, well I'm quite willing to be naive that's naive <laughs> not, and not sort of an accusation i regard
2: as very serious And that was Professor Sir Tony Atkinson. Inequality, What Can Be Done is published by Harvard University Press and retails for in and around 20 euros in hardback. It's an eye-opening read. Optimistic, measured and truly humane. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's programme and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with a perceptive quote Tony Atkinson references in his book Inequality, What Can Be Done. It's from American industrialist and politician, Senator Mark Hanna, who in the 19th century famously remarked that there are two things that are important in politics. The first is money, and I can't remember what the second one is. Good night.
1: new sock 106 to 108